Good morning, Parkway. Yes. My name is Adam Barngraf. Some of you uh, might not recognize me because I have shoes on instead of sandals. Yep. Did that just for you. Uh, you might also know me as the guy who messes up announcements. You're welcome. Do that uh, as much as I can for your benefit. Try what I can. No. Um, <clears throat> I'm the administrator here. Love being here. Uh, Parkway, special place to me. Came here originally 13 years old through that side door and uh, came through all through high school. Around 19, 20 years old, just a dream and desire of my heart was to work here. I'm 37 and I'm here as of January. So for me, uh, being able to open the word together here is very special. Being able to open the word together in a place that I love with the people that I cherish is an awesome, awesome thing. And so I'm exceedingly thankful for all of you. And uh, if you've got your Bibles... Uh, Turn to Psalm 22. We just read it. We're going to go through it uh, a little bit. Uh, But let me just uh, recommend to you that you bring your Bibles. You're going to see something in verse 21. I'm going to call it a pivot. It's really important to to what we're talking about today. I think it's really cool. Um, So if you don't have your Bibles, you you know, you're going to miss that part, but that's okay. You're going to see it on the screen, but I couldn't couldn't encourage you to bring it more. And just as an aside, if you've brought your Bibles before and you've lost them, we do have a lost and found with about 25 Bibles in it. So that could be yours. If you, it might not be in the gym bag after all. It might be here. So check it. Let's pause and pray together. God, we want to see Jesus clearly. Psalm 22 for us depicts Christ on the cross, the cries, the agony, the despair, the dark night of the soul. And we don't want to miss it. Because In it is the magnificence of how good our Savior is. And we don't want to miss that. God, we pray that what we hear and what we learn will quicken our hearts to worship. God, we want to magnify your Son. And we pray through your Spirit that you would do that today. You help us to make much of Jesus. Amen. So, um, preaching on lament. Anybody excited? (laughs) It's a title that when you see it every once in a while, people are like, oh, man, if I would have known, maybe maybe I would have skipped it. I'm glad that you didn't. I'm glad that you were here. Lament is an awesome thing, and I want to talk about it. But, you know, when you're preparing a sermon about lament, um, the conditions to do it are pretty interesting. See, my family's been gone for 33 days. They're back now. They got back on Wednesday. But for 33 days, my family was gone. And so thinking about lament was really easy. You know that Bill Withers song, Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone? Yeah, I was rocking that on the way home from the airport. Like, Ain't no sunshine. I was totally there. was there. I just absolutely was already depressed, and I'm like, this lament thing is going to be easy. But what you forget is that your wife comes home on Wednesday, the Sunday before you preach, and so you're joyous. Amen. And I'm like, oh, my wife is home, but I'm preaching on lament. And so, you know, I pull a typical me. Uh, maybe it's the Lord trying to keep me uh, there. Not that I want to ascribe what I, what I did to him, but show up to the airport, got the van clean. I own a 2006 and a 2007 Odyssey. You're welcome. Uh, <clears throat> but the 2007 Odyssey we didn't have when, uh, when my wife left. And so the 2007 came in, we got it all cleaned up. I put the, uh, the kids' booster seats and I put the base of the child seat in. I put the base of the child seat in. So what I forgot is that um, on top of the base should go the actual car seat. 
for your child? See, I, I didn't have an infant in my life for 33 days, and I was like, I was put in the basin, and I'm like, nailed it. Clean van. I'm going to see everybody. We're going to go out to dinner. It's going to be awesome. Uh, and lo and behold, I go to pick up my wife. She's in baggage claim. It's 33, minute, 33 seconds of bliss. See, I hug my kids. Everything's exciting. And she goes, oh, you drove the new van. You remembered the car seat? I'm like, totally got the base. Yeah, I got it. She goes, no, 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 you remember the car seat. And I'm like, oh, Lord, why me? So I got right back into the lamentable conditions. Anyways, got a lot of grace in that. My wife uh, forgave me the next day, so it was very nice. December 22nd, 2013, we get a phone call that our adoption is back on. And for you to understand how big of a deal that is, about a month earlier, my wife and I had decided it was too much. Pursuing this particular adoption was too emotional, too stressful. It was on again. It was off again. It was on again. It was off again. On again and off again. And we finally said, we have to, for our own hearts, say we just can't go any further. But we get a call on the 22nd that says, no, this time for real, it's on. And you can buy a plane ticket. And you can fly out on the, 22, or sorry, the 23rd red eye, and you can come on Christmas Eve morning. So my wife and I, we do that. She resigns from her job on the 22nd, I believe it was. As soon as we got that news, she resigned and said, <laughs> no two-week notice. Sorry about that. We're leaving. Going to go pick up our babies. And we went really excited. Here was the plan. 24th, meet with biological uh, mom. 25th, meet with biological dad. 26th. Show up for like a court date. That seemed pretty run-of-the-mill. Uh, get custody on the, on the afternoon of the 26th. You know, definitely adjust and do all that kind of stuff, but then, you know, we'll be good to go. And that's not how it worked out. Uh, we arrived on the, on the 24th, and if you've heard this story before, you know that this three-day stretch in my life, one of the most difficult that I've ever encountered. You see, what I wasn't prepared for was twofold. The first thing that I wasn't prepared for was to see brokenness face-to-face. Now, I'm sure you can see it other ways, but when you sit on a couch and you see the face of a mom who clearly has a love and a pride and a joy, but you know through circumstances and mistakes and brokenness that that can't be the case anymore, there's a brokenness that you come to realize But on top of that, there's a weird emotional part for me, which is, this is a glorious time because I'm going to be a dad. What I prayed about, what we've prayed about, what we've we've thought about, this this is the summation of it. We're going to be parents. And so I went into it thinking it was going to be more of a coronation, and I arrived, and my equilibrium was off. This was confusing. There's so much glorious here, and there's so much brokenness here, but then there's love here, and and I, and I, I almost didn't know how to process it. That's, that's Christmas Eve, 2013. Then the very next day, we put a little gift basket together. We're going to go see biological father. He lives in a house, no running water, no electricity, no nothing in it. We brought him a bag of coffee. Whoops. We didn't know. Met him for the first time. We sat on the porch, talked for two hours. Um, his final words, take care of my girls. You go, you go into those experiences thinking you might know what it's going to be like, and then you experience it, and you realize... This is different than what I imagined. Because what I benefit and what I'm getting out of it, there's pain associated on the other side. And oftentimes that doesn't seem right in our minds. And so 
you, you have to know that at this time of my life, I was not very well grounded in the Word. I'm going to just be completely honest with you. I wasn't, uh, uh, I, I prayed and I read, but I wasn't grounded. Does that make sense? Tracking with me on that? So those were, those were confusing days as it was, but come the 26th, the court date, we're supposed to see our girls. We're supposed to get physical custody. And what should have happened is that our lawyer should have notified ahead of time and said, hey, this couple is coming and they're going to adopt these kids. See, what happens in Florida is there is uh, there's a law there that if birth parents are, have either lost or are losing their parental rights, they can pursue a private adoption. And that's what they were doing. They were pursuing a private adoption. And technically what happens is you call the court, tell them you're coming, you arrive to the parents' court dates. When it's their turn, you stand up. The court knows they're coming. They say, we knew you were coming. Awesome. We're going to proceed with the adoption. Problem. When your lawyer does not call ahead, that was our situation. So we arrived to the courthouse on the 26th. I remember they asked me to take my hat off. Why I remember that detail, I don't know. But my hair was greasy and I was sad about it. It's funny how you remember those details. So I'm actually glad it didn't work that day because then the day we actually got them, I was combed up. So it looked, it looked better. But we, we sit in there. Sure enough, the, the case comes forward. Our lawyer stands up and goes, Your Honor, here's this couple. The judge is bewildered. He has no clue why we're there. Why are we grandstanding him in his court? And long story short, we didn't get the girls that day. We were told, No, not only are you not going to get them, we don't know if you ever will. And we've got a court date for you set in March. March. It's December. My wife doesn't have a job anymore, and I only have two weeks of vacation, and we are already on credit cards. Uh-oh. Uh, okay. Um, so we were bewildered. We were devastated. We were hurt. We didn't know what was going to happen. We were told we were not allowed to have visitation with the girls at all. But a social worker came and took us aside and said, would you like to meet them there next door? So we got to do that. We got to go next door, and we got to see them on the 26th, which I look now as an incredible blessing. But there's something else I wasn't prepared for. So being so close to them being yours, holding them, feeding them macaroni and cheese, putting them on your lap, taking pictures, and then buckling them in a car seat and not knowing if they're really going to be yours. Crying on the way home, they were, they were, we had to strap them in, they were weeping, and we were lost. I mean, if you know me, I'm fairly stoic. You, you might not think so, but, but I, in, in, in terms of weeping, I try to keep that behind closed doors. Uh, but as soon as we shut the door, I was unraveled. And here, here's the reason I tell you this story, and I'm going to just for time condense it. It all works out. We got them. They're in class right now. So we're good. We're good there. That's an exciting thing. But the reason I bring up this story is to highlight something that happened after we were told no. We were told no, and until we got the yes, which was two weeks later, and that happened through petitioning the court, getting a higher court date, all not terribly relevant. But there was a period of time, give it two and a half weeks, in which I was devastated in my faith, where I was confused, I was bewildered. I did not know such pain and such agony in my soul. And you know what I did? I didn't pray one time. I did not open my mouth to petition the Lord. I did not know how to deal with it. I did not know how to handle it. And when the Bible says we're supposed to pour out our heart before the Lord, I did everything in my power to grab a gigantic cork and shove it down. 
I basically just said, all of this in here, all the stuff that I don't know how to deal with, I'm going to marinate in it. And the only way you can get through that is like Top Chef marathons. That's what I did. I watched TV. My wife, she prayed. Many of you, you prayed. Our home church in Canada prayed. Uh, we had folks at a, of an, an adoption group for us prayed and fasted. We had people all over the country praying for us. And here I am, the one who's experiencing the suffering, experiencing the mourning, experiencing this, and I remain silent. And it's a shameful thing that happened. And I'm being honest with you because I've come to realize the deficiency of my faith in that moment. Not that I wasn't a saved person. I don't want you to hear that and, and think when I say deficiency of the faith. That's not what I mean. But when we read the word and when we treasure the word and when we pray expectantly and hopefully, when we do those things, we build up for us sort of an equity so that when suffering comes, we do cry out. But when you don't do that, when you don't build up the equity, when you have a narrow faith in that respect that only good things happen or good things have to happen for me to love the Lord, when the bad things come and you don't have anything to express and you're just empty, that's a very, very lonely place. And so later in my life, and I'm talking to my 30s, I endeavored, I need to figure this out. I don't think I've ever lamented. I don't think I had a faith that had ever cried out to the Lord and said, I need you so much more than anything I could ever have imagined or ask for. And I don't think I had done that. I think maybe, obviously, when I, when I prayed and asked the Lord that I wanted to follow him, I was, I was definitely there. But as time wore on, I realized my faith was more about doing what I could just to not be seen by God. If I can just go under the radar and make it to eternity, that would be sweet. No, seriously, sometimes we do that, don't we? Sometimes we do just enough. We go to church just enough. We forgive each other just enough. We ask for forgiveness just enough so that God never deals with us. That's our hope. Sometimes we do that. It's, it's subversive. Maybe we don't even know we're doing it, but we do that. We try to keep God close to us so that we never really actually have to deal with him. And I believe if we're being honest with each other, that struggle is probably not exclusive to me. Litmus test. What's your natural reflex when suffering and trials come to you? I told you what my natural reflex was. When suffering, when despair, when hurt came my way, I didn't have a word to say. It's just the truth of the matter. So I want to talk about lament, and I'm not going to talk about lament as an expert. I talk about lament for, as a beginner, as a rookie, as somebody who over the past two to three years has learned how to cry out through definitely circumstances and just the daily lamenting of the way the world is. Let's just be honest. Sometimes here we as Christians or we as people who are not Christians, we can all look at the world and realize something's not right that there's brokenness, that there is tragedies. I mean, I read the news just the other week, and I think so far since the summer months there's been seven, like, infant deaths in a hot car, all intentional. This is, this is insane to me, but this is our world. That's, that's not right. How do you explain that away? How do you, how do you have the language with which, to, with which to bring anguish to the Lord and be like, this is not right? Why is it like this? See, I believe that lament 
this is my definition, is a passionate expression of grief and sorrow combined with intimate and honest pleas to our God. We'll say that again. Lament is a passionate expression of grief and sorrow combined with intimate and honest pleas to our God. Now, lament is not a gift that some people excel in and some people don't. As a Christian, as somebody who follows the Lord, and if your trust is ultimately in him, lament is going to be part of the game. You don't get to go through life with just the celebration psalms. The reason for that is if you look at psalms in general, about one-third of them are lament. One-third of them are like, this is messed up stuff, and I don't like the way it's going, and I need you here. See, my, my reading of the psalms mostly before that had been like, mm, God is my strong refuge. refuge. Whoop. Put that one in the bank. I like that one. Uh, when we get to the stuff like, I cry out to you and you don't hear me, I'm like, skip that page, skip that, skip, 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 skip. Oh, seriously, I, I, didn't have, I, I didn't have the faith of the time with which to look at that. But we know from Hebrews uh, chapter 5, verse 7, this is the first part of verse 7, I'll read it for you. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. Lament was not infrequent in the life of Jesus. Lament was something that Jesus was very aware of and that he practiced. Now, here's one very important distinction. In our lives, sin is always part of the equation. When we talk about lament, we're almost always going to have to have some level of sinfulness in, in what we're talking about. That either it's a result of the sin-broken world or it's a result from our habitual pattern of turning away from God. But with Jesus, that wasn't the case. We know that he was perfect. We know that he was sinless. And so what's interesting to see is that even someone who had no errors, that was perfect in every way, still lamented. I think that's interesting. And so we find in Psalm 22, I believe, the final script or the script to the final hours of Jesus' life. And I believe that Psalm 22 for us is the lament of Christ on the cross. And I'm going to show you why I think that. Um, if you'll look at verse 1, we read that, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That should not be a, a line that we, we don't know. Most of us know that, but we probably know it from the Gospels. Um, Gospel of Matthew 27, 46 records it this way. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again in Mark 15, 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. Which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So think for a minute. Jesus knew the Old Testament. Jesus knew the book of Psalms. Jesus taught accurately from the books of Psalms. The Psalms have prophecies about him. And so here we see Jesus on the cross, and he prays, and he laments. But not a lament that is unknown to him, and not a lament that is unknown to everyone else, but a lament that is known. And I'm going to explain for you why I think that's important towards the end, but I, I want you to notice why I think this is about Jesus. So it's not just that he states it from the cross. We can look at verse 7. 
of Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And we look at Matthew 27, 39. And those who pass by derided him, wagging their heads. Same word. We can see, okay, maybe we're supposed to see Jesus in this psalm. Verse 16, it goes on. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Look at Luke 23, 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. Now, if you know about crucifixion, you know that crucifixion called for nails in the hand and nails in the feet. So we're seeing Jesus more in the psalm. And in verse 18 also, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And you look at Luke 23, 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. So what I submit to you, and I hope that you'll take by faith, is that this psalm for us is not only a lament of the Christ, it's also an accurate depiction of the final hours of Jesus. Thoughts, emotions, feelings. And we'll look at that. Because I want Jesus to be the model for us of what lament might look like in our lives. This is not to be an exhaustive list, but I want to make some observations of the text that I think we can apply to our lives and then take into our seasons of lament. A note before I start. You might have come in here today thinking, I'm pretty happy. Life is going pretty good. I just got back from the Bahamas. I got nothing to lament about. But we know that if not now, maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day, maybe a week from now, you are going to be experiencing something lamentable. If I think just in my mind, off the top of my head right now, what a congregation like this might be going through, what we might be feeling, lamentable experiences, marital strife, habitual sin, a child who's decided to turn away from the Lord, feeling forgotten and abandoned, having a crisis of faith in where we think that we're not saved anymore, having a financial crisis that means I'm down to my last pennies and I can't make it anymore. I could go on. I could keep going. Terminal illness, loss of a death one, chronic illness, fatigue, I mean, it could just keep, we could keep on talking about the things that are going to be lamentable in our life. So if you're here today and you're not currently experiencing a season of lament, I'm not asking you to get down in the dust if that's not where you're at. But if you're experiencing the dark night of the soul, what I'm hoping to say is that by looking at Jesus in our model, we will not be silent. I don't want you to be where I was. I don't want you to, to, to be in a dark night of the soul and stuff a cork in it. That's not what we want. And that's not what the Lord wants from us either. We know that. Think about verses like, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your souls. Think about all the promises that we have. Think about how we are not cast out, that we're able to be adopted. All of these promises that we have and the promises that I've heard and I'm sure a lot of us have heard over the years. And yet we still, in the most intimate of moments, when the door is closed and when when it's all dark around us, sometimes we struggle to lament. Sometimes that is where our faith is revealed. What do we do in that moment? So, let's look at the verse. It it breaks up in my mind into six pieces, and I'm going to try to do that relatively quickly for you. I don't want to go too, too far, uh, because it can take quite a while. But my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? 
So I'm, I'm calling this the first part of lament, and this is called the cry. So we see Jesus, and now we read it here in Psalm 22, but keep in your mind Jesus on the cross crying out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this is a cry. This is not a talk. This is a cry out to the Lord. I want you to get the picture in your mind. I want, to get you, I want you to get the tone in your mind. And there's a word in here, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? You know, for years I thought about that and I meditated on that. And, and the conclusion that I've come up to on this is the why is not a theological query. This why is not Jesus being like, could you please explain for me the reasons of which I have to go through this again? Can you remind me? That's not what it is. The why is a cry of agony. That when you have no other recourse because you know what's going to come. Because let's be honest, John 18, 4, this is what Jesus says, I know all that's going to happen to me. Says Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went with him anyways. So he's not up here thinking, what's next? He's up there knowing fully, wrath comes next. Separation from my Father comes next. I've never been separated. I've never been out of his presence. I've had perfect unity, perfect community. We've been coexisting since day one. And now I'm going to take on all of this wrath. All of this destruction, I'm taking it on willingly, but the cry is still why. Isn't that a magnificent richness that there isn't really a word that can even describe it? It's just why. Have you ever been at that place in life where you you don't really have a question, but you just say the word why? You've seen the movies where someone comes in the room like, why? You've seen that, right? I I mean, not to make light of the cry of Jesus, but that's it. That's what we're talking about here. Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, can you imagine that? Now, what I want to submit to you here is this is absolutely, truly, and fully a cry. That is true. But I also want to say that I think this is the beginning of Jesus reciting the psalm on the cross. And when you get to the end, I think you'll understand why it's so powerful that he did that. But notice, before the why, before the question... Why are you so far from saving me? You see, my God, my God. The cry is rooted in relationship. See, Jesus doesn't just say it one time. And he doesn't cry out to an unnamed source. Jesus, who is certain to know who guards his heart, certain to know what the Lord was going to require of him, that when he died, he would need the Lord to rescue him. He doesn't just cry out to a nameless God and say, God, I need, I need, I'm in a jam. No, it's my God. I know you. I know who you are. You are my redeemer. You are the one who's going to do it. You're my God. And every time the Bible has something right after it and it says the same thing, it's meant for double emphasis. So it's not just my God. It's my God, my God. So for us, our lament must be rooted in intimacy. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is probably the biggest reason why we don't lament. Because we've either done something to someone else, or we're struggling with that same old thing that continues to hound dog us after we thought we had taken care of it. Or there's a sickness that is going to absolutely be irreversible, and your faith can't take the fact that your prayers aren't going to be answered. 
most of the time we don't cry out because we lack true intimacy with the Lord. So I want to ask you again, like I said earlier, when the dark night of the soul comes, when tragedy surrounds you, when everything feels lost, what's your natural inclination? It reveals a lot about where we are. Jesus and the darkest night of the soul rooted instantly in relationship. My God, my God. There's no doubt. I'm going to cry, but I'm going to cry to my God. This is not an unnamed crying. This isn't a going out looking in the stars and being like, universe, you did it to me again. That's not it. And if you're a believer, it's even more not it because you have a double. Not only do you know that God is a deliverer, but he's done it in Jesus. And we have that. That is a promise for us. So when we don't lament, when we don't come to him, it's probably evidence of a lack of intimacy. Or we just don't want to be honest with how bad it really is. So we say a little, never mind, that's point two. I'm going to move that for a second. Let's go to point two here. Starts in verse two, and I'm calling this the complaint. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. So I'm calling it a complaint. I'm not calling this a complaint in the sense of like, Jesus did something wrong here. I'm calling it like he has a complaint. He has prayed. He has asked God to deliver. He's lived a life he should live. And presently he finds himself in a position where there hasn't been an answer. And there is no rest. So the complaint is, what have I done wrong? Think for a second if you paid your bill to the city of Fairfield and and your water, you know, it's always on, and then you keep on paying your bills on auto pay, but one day they turn it off. You're going to be like, hey, what are you turning off the water for? I've always had water. Water's always come there. I've always paid my bill. I've always done what I'm supposed to do, and um, you give me water. That's the, that's the way it works. I know that the water source doesn't run dry. Barrios is not gone, so why don't I have water? Think of it a little bit like that. It's just a natural honesty saying, I've prayed, I haven't heard. And so what I want to submit to you is that lament requires honesty. It requires saying exactly what you think and feel. Or it requires being accurate about your present situation. So, if you are in a place in which your marriage is on the rocks, crying out to the Lord does not sound like, just help me to just, I just need to love more. No, it says, this, is, this stinks. I did everything I could for this person. I, 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 I serve. We, we get together. We, we've done everything we can do. Uh, we've, bought, we've tried. We've gone to counseling. We've done this, that. We've done the other thing. And none of it's working. It seems to be getting worse. Or when we're dealing with sin in our lives, we don't lament the sin dishonestly by being like, I just need to just uh, hold on more tightly. That's what I got to do. Just got to hold on more tightly. No, what you need to do is say, Lord, I have a root in my heart that, pre- pre- that prefers sin over you. And you got to uproot it for me. We got to be honest about our present condition. Because if we are rooted, first and foremost, in that relationship, if we know our standing before the Lord, if we know that he wants us to come to them, why wouldn't we be honest? Why wouldn't we bring it? I mean, we'll read book after book. We'll go to friend after friend to get advice But what we might need is just being honest before the Lord to say, right now my faith feels feeble, and I don't think I can make it on my own, and I need you to be there. Faith, sorry, lament requires honesty. Three through five, section three is the acknowledgement. So 
we see Jesus, there's a cry, there's a complaint, but not even into the third verse we get the yet. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. I said earlier, sometimes what you put into the bank is what you need to draw on when times are dire. And I think that happens somewhat spiritually too. That we should be about the business of building up our faith and trust in who the Lord is despite our circumstances. See, there are, there are full movements out there that will say your present circumstances tell you exactly how you are spiritually. And if you're down in the dumps, your faith is bad. And if you're up high, then you've got a glorified faith. That's hogwash. And you should not be taking that teaching anywhere. The Bible teaches us that in every circumstance, God is good. In all of them. So if you find yourself presently in suffering... If you find yourself presently in a situation in which you can't get yourself out of, it's that trust in the very nature of who God is. Because if you read the word and you go about meditating on it and you can still come to the conclusion that God is not for you, we have a serious problem. But if you read scripture and you meditate on it, you will know that you can put your trust in the unfailing one, the one who will never let you down. And this is what we see Jesus doing. There's agony. There's an honesty of not being heard. But before you go too far, there's the yet you are holy. And this is imperative that we do this. Lament must be rooted in trust. You can't lament by saying, everything is bad. Here's what you haven't done. Amen. That's not how it goes. You can still say, this is real bad. Look at all the things that haven't been done. But I still trust in you but my heart still longs for you. But I know in the morning you will still come. I know this promise, and I know this promise, and I know this promise, and I'm going to hold on to them as hard as I can because that's all I've got in this moment. That's what I mean by lament needs to be rooted in trust. Verse 6, we get into suffering, and that goes all the way to verse 18, and I'm going to highlight some of it, but what you're going to find here is you see the psalm going like this now, don't you? There was a down, a cry, and then it kind of went to a complaint, and then it went to a you are holy, and now here we are right down in suffering. And how realistic is that to our own lives? I love that fact. But I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths of me like a ravening and roaring lion, poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. This is real suffering. See, the suffering I talked about, the anxiety of not knowing if the kids are going to be mine or not, this para- that pales, just pales in comparison to the suffering Savior whose very heart is poured out like wax. And do you know what Christ's reflex was in suffering? Verse 1 basically told it for us. These are connected. His reflex in suffering was to immediately pray and reach out to God. And not just any psalm, Psalm 22, that's going to end in triumph. I ask again, what's your reflex? Because lament for us is a reflex to suffering. Or it should be 
a reflex to suffering. If we are suffering in any way and we know who we are, we know that we've been purchased with a price, we know that we're Christ's, if that's true of us, then we are going to cry out. I remember I was talking with Dennis um, maybe three weeks ago, and something he said just struck me. He was like, I was just at my house one night, and then I just started crying out to God. He said, it's super casual. I'm like, what, what? Just casually crying out to God? That's cool. I mean, I'm glad that that's the case, but I love that, that it doesn't have to be this drawn-out thing, but it's like, I need you. Is that making sense? We there? We get into verse 19, and we get into petition. Okay? So we've gone through the suffering. The, the reflex of Jesus is to be honest about what he's actually struggling with. He actually says what the suffering is like. I encourage that we do that as well. But in 19, we have the petition, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. We're asking for something. O you, my help, come quickly. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. These are all petitions. These are all requests. And something that I find really interesting is that in verse 2, we find that, you know, all the prayers that I've been doing don't seem to be answered. But now what we get is, I'm praying again anyways. That even despite all of that, the progression of my lament is, I've cried out, I've complained, I've acknowledged that you're holy, I'm telling you about my suffering, but now I'm going to pray about it. Because I'm going to cast my cares upon the one who can do something about it. We should not grow weary in doing that good of praying and of that good of petitioning. So for us, our takeaway is that lament is a type of petition for us. And ultimately, in 21, this is what I wanted to show you. This is the pivot. If you look at 21, it says, Save me from the mouth of the lion. Same verse. There's no break in our scriptures, whether that's unintentional or whether that should have been 22. I don't know. But I'm calling this a pivot to praise. You have rescued me from the horn of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. It's like here's this, this petition that just by natural extension becomes praise. Isn't that how it happens oh so often for us? We come to the Lord with petition, we pray, and then we find ourselves just in one thought all of a sudden we're like, hey, but you're good, but you're enthroned on high. You've never let anyone down. This is, I think, what we see happening. And I think it's an incredible thing for us. We, we get a mid, basically mid-thought pivot to praise because verse 21 or half of 21 through 31, the whole remainder of the psalm is just a testimony to triumph. It's just a testimony to triumph of the deliverance that is going to come. And I just want to read for you 22 through 24, and that's it. I won't read all through 31. But I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All of you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. This is what I love. And he has not hidden his face from them. He has heard. He has heard when he cried to him. So what starts as a declaration of complete agony in 23 or in 24 now says, but he has heard. So if I'm correct in assuming that Jesus was repeating Psalm 22 on the cross, what's the ultimate summation? 
that although I'm going through all of these things, although there is going to be for me a suffering that I cannot imagine, although there's going to be a sacrifice, although there's going to be wrath, I know that comes soon, it all ends in triumph. Because in 24, he has heard, not will, has, present tense, our Savior is near. And so for us, in our lament, the way you can look at it, in the midst of our lament, Jesus crawls into it. Jesus crawled into Psalm 22 and made it his own on the cross when he repeated it. And so, we know that intimacy with the Lord, Jesus purchased it for us. We're adopted as sons. The complaint that we might have, we have a great high priest who is constantly before the throne praying for us. When we talk about holiness, who is more lofty than our Lord who died and was resurrected and is now enthroned on high? When we suffer, who knows suffering all the more? Again, Jesus is our great high priest who has suffered in every way so that we might know. Petition. Jesus is our petition. He stands before the Father on our behalf saying, this one's mine. And finally, the triumph. We know the triumph of Christ. We know that he's coming back to pick us up. That he will be ours. So our lament never ends hopeless. Our lament is always rooted in the trust and the fact that Christ, what he has purchased, he will see through to completion. He is faithful to do it and he will do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that we can see the movement of Christ on, during his final hours, that we can see the trust, the foundation, the fact that in our darkest nights, we can turn to you and we will not be turned away. Father, I pray that you will help us to be brave enough to lament, not hopeless, but hopeful, knowing that you hear us and knowing that you have accomplished it. Father, I pray you bring that to our hearts. Help us to make much of you throughout the rest of this day. Amen.